Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 19, Ellesmere, Tornado Topics, Blame. Welcome to Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. Today, we continue our commentary for Ellesmere, we briefly revisit super speed and durability, and we discuss whether Clark is at fault for the Kryptonians. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel. To answer the critics and the confused, this show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. We're back! I'm going to be away on business a bit, but I hoped that I could sneak a episode in before going out of town. So when outlining my notes, I was a bit surprised at how fertile ground these scenes were for topics and commentary, but we're just going to have to make do with what I was able to throw together and maybe revisit some of these things down the road. When we last left Clark, he had trashed a truck, and now we pick up with Clark hitchhiking to Ellesmere. I've just got two quick comments about this little interstitial scene. First, note that we hear the percussion of the Superman precursor theme, those optimistic drums. It's the forward-looking suggestion that Clark is moving towards his identity, and this is a step in the right direction. Second, hitchhiking tends to demand a certain degree of optimism, socialization skills, and trust in mankind that's slightly old-fashioned and fallen out of favor today. I know hitchhiking was waning in my time, but the social contract of hitchhiking believes in the kindness of others. Now, to be fair, Clark can definitely take care of himself, and even without his powers, you don't pick up a muscle-bound man like him of his size with the intention of harming him. But it means that others can trust him enough, despite his frame, to show him the kindness and charity of a ride and some company. Now, why or whether Clark even needs to hitchhike is a separate topic, and we'll maybe tackle that later. So, one of the goals of this commentary is to point out the little things that fly by so quickly that you might not catch them the first time. When we get to Ellesmere, I don't know whether there's any meaning or parallels, but Lois enters the film via helicopter. It's easy to miss, but the person who helps her down from the helicopter is Clark under the guise of Joe. She locks eyes with Clark, who helps him down, and she says thanks. And as you no doubt recall, the last scene of the film is Lois introducing herself to Clark, shaking his hand, and welcoming him. That means that for Lois, her first and last lines in the films are directed towards Clark, who she interacts with in both instances. The first time not quite noticing him, and the final time knowing more about him than anyone else. Again, I don't know if that's significant, but perhaps somebody more literary-minded than me has some ideas. There also might be some parallels between Lois and Clark and a helicopter meeting for the first time in Man of Steel and Superman 78, but I don't know. Well, speaking about the helicopter, it's clearly a civilian model, marked Arctic Cargo, and Jed Eubanks introduces himself as from Arctic Cargo. I mention this because the film clearly intended a civilian presence at this military installation, which is outside of the United States and meant to have little or no permanent U.S. presence. With the support of the host nation, 
here Canada, and civilian contractors. The intentional and authentic inclusion of contractors at this military site explains why both Clark and Lois are able to be there. Some try to suggest that any military installation is going to be locked as tight as Fort Knox or Area 51, but that simply isn't the case for high-speed, nearly spontaneous camps like this one. The privatization was intentional and authentic. The filmmakers didn't accidentally paint Arctic cargo onto the side of the helicopter or mistakenly have them help with the logistics of the camp. It was reasonable for the citizens to have limited access, and Lois even cites the contractors as corroborating her story to Perry later. Perhaps I'm getting into this too much, but sometimes people point out clearly intentional inclusions as if they were accidental oversights. For example, showing Clark's humanity and flaws, or in this case, showing his ability to access this temporary military camp. Jed Eubanks calls it a camp, which is what it is, but let's not skip over his lines. He says, I've got to confess, Miss Lane, I'm not a fan of the Daily Planet, but those pieces you wrote when you were embedded with the 1st Division, well, they were pretty impressive. First, this establishes that Lois distinguishes herself from the pack, enough to convince a detractor. Now, I don't know necessarily why Jed doesn't like the Daily Planet. Maybe it has political leanings that he doesn't agree with, or maybe he just doesn't like journalists in general. But whatever those feelings are, Lois's work and reputation overcomes that. Second, we know that Lois is a seasoned reporter who has presumably done some war correspondence, so she's used to action, danger, and soldiers. This also tends to indicate that Eubanks is American, maybe, since his reference to the 1st Division is most likely talking about the 1st Infantry Division, with the nickname the Fighting 1st or the Big Red 1, since their shoulder patch insignia is literally a red numeral 1 on an olive green shield. Their mottos are no mission, too difficult, no sacrifice, too great, and duty first. And they hold the distinction of being the oldest continually serving division in the regular U.S. Army. Through the 2000s, they've been deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, meaning that Lois was embedded with them while in the Middle East. So she's no stranger to dealing with the military, and I'm sure you're aware that in many traditions, Lois was a military brat and her father a general, something yet to be established in the cinematic universe. But in a way, not having General Sam Lane makes Lois a little more impressive, because she garnered her reputation and gained access to the military on her own without relying on her connections to her father. Maybe. Looking over the camp, we see that it's a collection of modular buildings reflecting its temporary and hasty nature. In the interior of one of those buildings, Lois meets Colonel Hardy and Dr. Emile Hamilton, and we get a short moment packed with a lot of nonverbal acting. Everyone is all smiles. Lois extends her hand in greeting, and Hardy leaves her hanging. And Lois smiles with that knowing look, which says, okay, so that's how it's going to be. Hamilton does accept her handshake, and Hardy confronts her with her early and unexpected arrival. She launches into some challenging dialogue about the procedural details, which we covered extensively in episode 11, and then says, So if we're done measuring dicks, can you have your people show me what you've found? Hardy grimaces, and Hamilton can't help to be amused. There's so little to work with, but we get a lot out of it. Hardy clearly has a problem with Lois, and Hamilton is affable. And we see that Lois is able to stand her own. Neither the military or DARPA's presence should automatically raise an eyebrow. In a previous episode, we laid out that the USAF can have the duty to track anomalies, and NORTHCOM, founded in 2002 in response to 9-11, is generally tasked with coordinating with the continent 
continental allies like Canada to protect American interests. Meanwhile, DARPA's interests and projects are so varied and disparate, you could almost expect a representative to show up anywhere under some tenuous technological connection. DARPA sometimes refers to itself as a hundred geniuses connected by a travel agent. Nonetheless, Lois's instincts served her well in getting on this story. Longtime Superman fans will be familiar with Dr. Emil Hamilton, who was created by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway in 1987, and has historically flipped between ally and enemy across media. He's one of the most reoccurring modern Superman supporting cast members, appearing in Lois and Clark, the animated series, the DCAU, and Smallville liked Dr. Hamilton so much, they had two. The first played by Joe Morton in the first two seasons, then a different, presumably unconnected, Dr. Hamilton would appear in season eight on, played by Alessandro Giuliani, who is in our next scene as Officer Sikowski. You may recall him as Lieutenant Felix Gaeta on Battlestar Galactica. Man of Steel has a lot of fun casting like that. We could play six degrees of separation with Man of Steel and genre media all day. When you factor Battlestar Galactica, The Matrix, Dollhouse, and so much more into the mix. Christopher Maloney, who plays Colonel Hardy, was Hal Jordan in Green Lantern First Flight. Superman's two dads both played Robin Hood. Aaron Smolinski played baby Clark Kent, the one who lifts the truck in Superman 78, also cameos as a communication officer in Man of Steel. However, to keep this from being an audio reading of IMDb, let's just confine the connections to Smallville. Amy Adams was, of course, the freak of the week in the episode Craving. Blogger Woodburn played by Chad Krochuk, was in Forever. Mackenzie Gray, who played Jack Zur, also played Lex Luthor's clone in season 10's premiere, Lazarus. Timo Pennekit had a small cameo in season 3, then came back in the reoccurring role of Wes Keenan in season 6. Ian Tracy, who played Ludlow, was the villain in season 5's Mercy, and David Paitko, the officer who says Superman in the film for the first time, had a bit role in season 1 and then returned to play Dan Turpin in bulletproof. All of these connections came by way of the kryptonsite.com. Check them out. We definitely need to talk about the ties to the Matrix, Cavill and Adams trying out for their respective roles multiple times in the past, and more behind-the-scenes stuff someday. Casting and connections could be an entire episode all on its own, but we have got to move on. So the scene shifts, and we get a deluge of dense techno babble that's pretty good to my ear. But if you're an expert in satellites, the interaction of ice shelves and radio echo soundings, and isotope analysis feel free to write me in with your take on the terms being thrown about. One of my pet peeves is the misuse of expert terminology as technobabble when all you have to do is consult an expert to make the lines work, which is why we went into the legal mumbo-jumbo so much in our Lois Lane episode. But here, I think everything is at least excusable. A quick note, however, I think I've misinterpreted the 300-meter line here at least twice. Once in the scout ship video where I say it's the size of a Soviet-era sub, and Hardy says it's clear larger than that because it's 300 meters in size. And then again, I make a mistake in probably, I think, the first episode where I say that it was buried in the ice 300 meters deep, when again, it's 300 meters in size. I've made plenty of mistakes, just generally speaking. So always double check, 
be for sighting. The 20,000-year-old figure seems tied to the start of human civilization, perhaps as a way of explaining or excusing how its prehistoric arrival was never recorded, discovered, or disclosed throughout time. For example, if the ship had landed last week, it's hard to imagine humanity not discovering it earlier. We can speculate on this more, but another time, let's keep going. Hardy tells Lois not to wander, and warns that temperatures drop to minus 40 at night and that they wouldn't find her body until after spring. This is clearly an attempt to manipulate her, but first, 40 degrees below zero, but 40 degrees what? Celsius or Fahrenheit? Well, fun fact, either one. This happens to be the one point where the two scales converge with the same number. Just to give you some perspective on how cold minus 40 is, breathing air that cold is actually potentially dangerous. It's difficult to breathe deeply without reflexively coughing because the air is cold enough to stay cold and cause cellular damage to your respiratory system. Any little bit of exposed tissue, even your teeth, will experience pain from the temperature. If you add wind chill to that, you can suffer frostbite in mere seconds. If you've ever seen videos of boiling hot water thrown into the air and freezing midair, that was about 20 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. But later, we see Lois wandering around at night, and her face is completely exposed, her hair is blowing in the wind, and we see the flag being blown nearly straight out. That means it was unlikely to be 40 below. That doesn't mean that Hardy was lying exactly. Temperatures can get that cold, certainly. However, his warning seems motivated more as a means of limiting Lois's movements than a genuine warning or concern for her safety. He asks her to try not to wander, and then casually predicts the morbid discovery of her body if she doesn't listen. We see Joe slip by them again, reinforcing the idea that he's basically invisible to them at this point. And then we get the exchange about tinkling. Uh, man, I've got an old article published about 2003 about the misapplication of the term plot hole and the absence of bodily functions on screen, but another time. <laughs> um, actually, probably not. But remember, quote, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, unquote. Not unicorns, not two empty halves of a coconut, which may have been carried by an African swallow. Okay, Lois laying out her photography equipment and assembling it harkens to that IKEA weaponry trope, or the lock and load montage, where the subject prepares for battle with a lot of clicking noises and gearing up. Here, it's modest, realistic, and a mere moment, but it still conveys the sense of competence and adventure that you get from the traditional trope. Lois gearing up shows her to be a woman of action, not content to wait out the night in her bunk. If you're a Nikon fan, you might recognize Lois's loadout, a $5,000 D3S digital SLR, a $300 SB700 speedlight flash, and a $2,000 2470 zoom lens. The D3 is a flagship professional grade DSLR camera that many professional photojournalists swear by. It's hefty in size and weight and hefty in price. I've never owned a camera that cost anything close to that, but I raise it because the night shot that happens to capture Clark on an evening stroll is often pointed out as improbable. But I'm told that this camera could just about pull it off with its world-class, high ISO, stable body, and lightning-fast shutter response. This means that you can heavily crop images or zoom in and still get impressive quality. Plus, it's not as if the image she captured of Clark was perfect. He's a blurry smudge in her viewfinder after zooming in on him. The fact that this is a 
real-world camera also triggers the topic of product placement, which I think we'll save that for another time. But for now, I'll just say that I like the placement, even if it wasn't paid for. Putting Krypton aside, if we're in a realistic reality, here, it's still a bit of a fringe reality. We're in the Arctic, at a military-occupied archaeological site, about to encounter an 18,000-year-old anomaly from the stars. In that context, talking about real-world agencies, seeing real-world vehicles, and real-world equipment put me back into a grounded and authentic state of mind. I'd want that, whether the placement was sponsored or not, and to me, it makes the film more immersive than if the camera had been branded with a fake and non-existent brand. But enough about the camera. This brings us to the tunnel, and let's listen to Amy Adams talk about this scene. And so I wanted to talk to Amy about this moment where I arrive at the scout ship for the first time. And um, unbeknownst to me, you're following me. I have followed him. Um, so I'm completely wrapped up in this sort of, this discovery. Yes. What are your thoughts when you were going through that tunnel? Well, as Amy, my thoughts were waterproof socks are not in fact waterproof <laughs> my at thoughts all. Do. Um, but uh, in the character, it was a fascinating, um, really fascinating to get to walk down this um, very, very dark, scary place following a man she doesn't know. And that's when I sort of understood the fearlessness of this character and, and not that she didn't possess fear but that she had the strength to work through the fear to find the story and get to the truth and and it was um it was a lot of fun to shoot actually yeah yeah, yeah it felt really good to be there you sort of, it felt very grand and in scope yeah and so it was a huge set it was amazing yeah it was very cool Clark sees the ship for the first time, and his mind and ours should be flooded with questions. The shape and the form reminds us of his capsule, even if not the scale, and here Krypton is the only magic in the world so far. We've seen the vessel that brought him, but what is this? And if you haven't read the prequel comic, and until Jor-El explains it to us, this monolith is a mystery. Yet the filmmakers gave us hints on Krypton. Jor-El did say, look to the stars like our ancestors did. Jor-El and Lara were already scouting this planet's qualifications, and so somewhere in the back of our minds should be the idea that this ship is tied to that. Let's talk about the discovery of the, the Kryptonian ship on Earth. This ship has been under the ice at least 20,000 years, could have been there for 100,000 years. It's part of the golden age of Kryptonian space travel and is a far more elegant elegant uh, design language and we really thought a lot about these lines which again re refer back to the kind of biological um, organic shapes but in a far more kind of flowing uh, coherent way. The console appears and Clark spots the pentagonal recess. In vaguely horror film fashion, we see the sentry descend behind Clark. At this point, we're more familiar with these than Clark is, having spent some time with them on Krypton. We shouldn't necessarily consider them a threat, except for how eerily it approaches and the soundtrack. Clark pulls the command key from his neck and smiles as it fits the console perfectly. However, he now detects the sentry and is startled. It attacks him, and it actually manages to cause him to grab his arm. From the film, it's unclear whether or if this actually harms him. In the novelization, there's a suggestion of a welt. And in fact, it's strong enough to actually prevent Clark from being able to just easily hit the command key. I haven't had more time to break down what this says or what it means, whether it's commentary 
commentary on how strong Clark is in this moment, or perhaps how strong these Kryptonian robots can be. But I'm inclined to believe that this reinforces the idea that Clark exerts his strength by sheer force of will. That he doesn't exert his full strength unless he wills it. But I need to think more about it some other time. We want to be careful not to reach conclusions too soon without weighing all the evidence. And one of the common criticisms, comments, or complaints about Man of Steel is that Clark didn't utilize his powers in a certain way or at a certain time. However, when I look at these criticisms, they tend to be founded in the Superman tradition outside the film rather than what we were actually presented in the film. I kind of summarized this in the Man of Steel myths video covering the myth that Clark should have used his super speed. But those kind of objections get raised a lot in this scene. For example, how come Clark didn't know that Lois was following him? So this is a good place to pause and talk about Clark's limitations, especially since the next time we see Clark outside the scout ship, he's learning to fly. So we can take a moment to inventory his powers and limitations as presented by the film thus far. It's important because this gives us context for interpreting other flashbacks that take place in this non-linear narrative, and it addresses criticisms which allege the mishandling or misuse of Superman's powers. So, for example, we're familiar with the tradition of Superman having super hearing or auditory omniscience as we talked about in episode 3. In that episode, I was more concerned about the mechanics of the range of the power, but we didn't really talk too much about the narrative consequences of the power if given global scope. I think I hand-waved it as a matter of hearing but not listening, but however we excuse it, either as inability or inattentiveness, the end result is the same. Superman isn't all-knowing or omniscient in Man of Steel. Personally, this is my preference because writing around this and the moral and ethical gymnastics used to justify inaction despite awareness of certain evils can quickly leave the realm of the intuitive. But let's not get into that now. The point is, the oil rig is dense with information about how Clark's powers work so that the audience's expectations are in check throughout the film, as long as they drew the right conclusions. Literally, the first interaction between Clark and another human being that we see on Earth is Clark being saved, pushed out of the way, proving that Clark can be surprised and he's not omniscient. Again, the specific mechanism of why is unknown, but you can't argue with what's on the screen. Clark was surprised, and so it's completely reasonable that he could be surprised and caught off guard again. Therefore, it's unreasonable to condemn Clark for not knowing Lois had followed him into the ship, or saying that Superman shouldn't have been ambushed by Zod during their fight, because it's literally the first thing the filmmakers communicate to us about this version of Superman, that he has the capacity and the ability to be surprised. We should be disabused of the notion of omniscience almost immediately. We also see that Superman can be pushed around, both by Byrne tackling him and by the boat that he's on. This is important because there's an inclination to equate durability with immobilization, but that isn't the case here. However, most importantly, we're shown that Clark can't fly in his climb up the oil rig. You can't establish something definitively by its absence, but you can support a reasonable inference. The inference is proven later by Clark actually learning to fly on camera. But I think between the oil rig and then, we're given plenty of opportunities to make the reasonable inference that Clark can neither fly nor move invisibly fast such that he can avoid detection or identification. To be clear, I'm not saying that he can't leap tall buildings. I'm not saying that he can't use his super strength to move much faster than a mere mortal. I'm highlighting that there's a difference between incredible leaps 
and flying, just as there is a difference between mechanically moving faster and supernaturally moving faster the way we expect with super speed, moving along the ground rather than in great leaps, being invisibly and undetectably fast, and potentially having the ability to interact with the environment harmlessly while at speed. We discussed a lot of these nuances of super speed in episode 5. Now, several have pointed out that Clark gets to the rig in record time, but I'd counter with two things. First, that there are cuts obscuring the amount of time that it actually took Clark to get to the rig, and second, he can still get there swimming quickly through super strength rather than super speed. We talk about those mechanics in episode 4 and in the mailbag of episode 17. Now, with respect to super speed, the most common point of condemnation is Clark's failure to invisibly and without detection rescue Jonathan in the tornado scene. However, for that criticism to hold any weight, Clark has to be capable of doing that. And I don't think we see any on-screen indication that he can within Clark's chronology up to that point. To the contrary, the film gives us at least six scenes that would have gone differently if Clark had those abilities. So from these examples, let's just ask whether flight or super speed would have changed them. First, we have the oil rig itself. If Clark could fly, he probably wouldn't have been shown climbing the rig, and we wouldn't see the men being rescued by way of helicopter, but perhaps by a flying Clark. Or Clark wouldn't have stopped the falling derrick at its base, where he had the least leverage, and maybe would have flown up higher to hold up the derrick. We can and should ask these same questions with super speed. If Clark could save these people invisibly without revealing his identity, why wouldn't he? Clark obviously wants to save these people. We broke down the personal cost of him doing this rescue in the oil rig episode. Clark isn't preserving his secret or hiding the fact that he has powers. When he tears open that door, they all can see that he has powers and they can see his face. However, there is still the pressure of time. Clark knows that outside, they're about to give up on them. He's already heard over the radio, forget them, they're dead. With his powers already revealed and his face already seen, he isn't just trying to hide the fact that he has super speed. If he could, he would use super speed to topside them ASAP. Why doesn't he? Likely because he can't. He doesn't have the power that people assume that he does at this time. Now, second after the oil rig, Clark comes ashore, shirtless, shoeless, and his pants in tatters. His secret is still important, so he needs a disguise to maintain the appearance of normalcy, something that isn't maintained by asking for the clothing in that state. So Clark takes the clothing. It isn't out of physical necessity, but to preserve his secret. However, if Clark could fly, he could at least temporarily hide his nakedness in the clouds with flight until an acceptable disguise presented itself. Or if Clark could move at speeds that render him undetectable or unidentifiable, then he wouldn't have to take these clothes, would he? That might give new meaning to the word streak, but he wouldn't need clothes to hide if he had his speed to hide with, or to get him clothes obtained without moral compromise, like from Goodwill. Now third, there's the flashback to the bus rescue, which allows us to ask the question, if Clark could perform the entire rescue unseen, why wouldn't he? And then fourth is Jonathan's serious concern over Clark's secrecy. Every version of Jonathan wants to protect Clark's secret, but Jonathan's concerns are doubly justified in Man of Steel for two reasons. First, Clark was actually caught using his powers and seen. This isn't a mere hypothetical case as it was for most of the other Jonathans. Here, there is a clear and present and actual danger of discovery. And second, Clark doesn't have the same flight and speed abilities that we've seen from other versions. If Clark can fly, 
he can always escape. If Clark can be invisibly fast, he can keep his secret safe. In the Smallville TV show, Clark was so fast that he could essentially stop time, and in one episode, he foils a kidnapping and murder attempt while on the football field and about to be tackled, before hundreds of witnesses with all eyes on him, the quarterback. Not to mention the player about to tackle him. Clark runs off the field, saves Chloe, runs back into place to be tackled, and no one is the wiser. Being able to move that fast without detection would reasonably mitigate concerns about secrecy. Jonathan's concerns in Man of Steel are more in line with somebody without those powers. Fifth is the hitchhiking to Ellesmere. If Clark can fly, well, why hitchhike? Or if Clark could run there in the blink of an eye undetected, why wouldn't he? As Lois later writes, a background check revealed that his work history and identity had been falsified. So clearly, Clark did not want to leave behind evidence of his comings and goings. So rather than leaving a truck driver witness, why not just appear in Ellesmere? Unless you can't. Six, we have the job at Ellesmere. If Clark could zip around invisibly and interact with objects harmlessly in the way that rescuing Jonathan requires if you're going to connect with him at invisibly fast speeds, then why would Clark bother with creating a false identity and working as Joe at all? He could simply zip through the camp, observe or grab whatever information he's looking for, and no one would be the wiser. Unless it's wrong to assume that he can do that. As a lesser point, Clark makes his way to the scout ship by strolling rather than running, arguably because moving at human speeds is more discreet than trying to move at his fastest, yet nonetheless observable top speed. Maybe. Even at Feora's fastest, for example, she's still quite observable, and somebody moving like that might attract way more attention than somebody just on a stroll. Maybe. The point is a bit undercut by Clark's light clothing, but perhaps it's not as bitterly cold as Hardy threatened, as we've already discussed, and maybe Clark did his best impersonation of Solid Snake to get that far. Now, it's not exactly its own point, but we've yet to see a scene in Man of Steel where Superman interacts with something at high speed harmlessly. It's no use getting to Jonathan instantly if you can't touch or move him without tearing him apart. Before we got to the tornado scene, Clark gets blessed with the gift of flight and with its speed. Truly incredible speed. Later in the film, he can be clocked at nearly 900 times the speed of sound, and with a bit of tongue-in-cheek math, he travels at about 1.5% the speed of light in another feat. But that's another show. The film shows us, before the tornado scene, that even the very air makes violent sonic booms when he rips through it. Say nothing of his father, which brings us to the scene itself. Seventh is the tornado scene. If Clark could invisibly and harmlessly rescue Jonathan without consequence, why wouldn't he? Right? Rather than condemn Clark for callousness, might we reasonably question the assumption that Clark even could rescue Jonathan in that way? Now, I recognize that there are far more and other criticisms of that scene, but we'll get to them eventually. I promise we're just not there yet. However, as long as we're talking about Clark's limitations and assumptions about his powers and the tornado scene, let's tackle Clark's durability in the context of this scene. So the basis of many other criticisms of either Jonathan or Clark or the filmmakers in this scene has to do with the essential assumption about Clark's capabilities and durability. The criticism takes many forms and relies on many different moral calculations, such as utilitarianism, but the argument can go something like this. Jonathan shouldn't have gone to rescue Hank, or Clark shouldn't have let Jonathan rescue Hank because Clark is invulnerable. 
I'm hesitant to even raise this Hydra because, like I said, there are a dozen subtle variations on this in terms of reasoning, strategy, empathy, and so on, and I am intentionally wording the critique this way to simply address at least one point of assumption underlying many similar points. But I do not pretend that there aren't more nuanced ways to forward this criticism. Those other ways just aren't illustrative for my purposes right now in this narrow and limited discussion. Again, we'll tackle it all eventually. But for now, let me ask this. How do we know, or why can we assume, that Jonathan knows that Clark would survive a tornado? It's really easy to fall into cognitive bias and assume that Jonathan knows at this point in time something that we've known from years of tradition and expectation outside media or even other parts of this film that we're privy to. For example, Jor-El suggesting that Kal-El would be unkillable or Clark's durability feats in the oil rig. But let's look at this logically. Let's have some empathy and use our imaginations and then look at things from Jonathan's perspective at this point in time. Here, they clearly know that Clark has powers. They know about the strength, the senses, and the heat vision. How do we, the audience, know that they know anything about durability? Frankly, we don't. A little later in the film, we learn that teenage Clark was at least physically bullyproof. But there is a great gulf of difference between not being worried about being bruised by a bully and imagining yourself invulnerable in the face of a tornado. I'm still doing the research on where the tornado in Man of Steel sits on the enhanced Fujita scale, but suffice to say it had the energy to throw cars into the air. And that isn't something people experience on a regular basis. So how do you determine how durable you are? It's easy to say testing, but when your physiology defies science as we know it, testing beyond a certain point is more reckless than reasonable and more fantasy than factual. In 2006, NBC launched a primetime science fiction drama called Heroes, which at least initially began with the premise of ordinary people in the real world discovering that they had superpowers in the vein of mainstream comic books. One of the main characters in this ensemble was Claire, a 15-year-old cheerleader from Texas, who tests and documents her abilities to regenerate by throwing herself off multi-story structures. I enjoyed the show for what it was at the time, but I'm sorry, that's incredibly stupid. It's all fine and dandy if she keeps surviving the tests, but what happens if she doesn't? How does she know that terminal velocity isn't her kryptonite? Later in the series, she discovers that injuries to her brain is a limitation on her power. However, her approach to testing could have easily ended in tragedy. It was stupid. And to be fair to the show, teenagers are sometimes stupid. However, in Man of Steel, we see that Clark doesn't keep these kinds of things secret from his parents. He's frank with them even at his most frustrated after four years of playing it safe after the bus incident. So his parents are part partners in his powers, and Jonathan always wanted to protect Clark. And while that might manifest itself in measured tests of his durability, I'm more inclined to believe that meant treating Clark like he was normal. And that seems more consistent with Clark's statement about playing it safe, and the fact that he doesn't discover flight until after meeting Jor-El. This is completely sane. In fiction, one typically discovers the extent of their powers by way of accident, impulse, or idiocy. In an accident, the 
test was unavoidable, so the hero learns that they can survive a car accident or a great fall. For example, in Smallville, Clark learns that he's durable when Lex Luthor hits him with his sports car and they careen off the bridge into the water below. In the 2000 film Unbreakable, David Dunn survives a train crash, which causes him to ask questions. With Impulse, the hero doesn't know what their limits are, but nonetheless tests them because of an overriding interest, like saving someone, which in turn uncovers some limits. For example, in Superman the Animated Series, Clark survives an explosion while trying to rescue some people trapped in a burning vehicle. In Superman Unchained Issue 9, Martha is genuinely upset at somebody pointing a shotgun at Clark, and Clark gets shot trying to protect her. In Idiocy, the test is completely avoidable, but the hero assumes that they can and will survive it, and for the sake of the story they do, but the outcome could have gone the other way. Shortly after Clark survives the accident in Smallville, he vents his frustrations at his abnormality to Jonathan by thrusting his hand into a wood chipper, mangling the machine by but leaving his arm unscathed. Jonathan is clearly shocked, meaning he wasn't certain that Clark could survive that. And Clark was foolish to do that because the forces involved in a car accident are different than those inside a wood chipper. Nonetheless, despite the irrationality of the test, it does act as a feat. And before we gave the example of Claire from Heroes intentionally falling from several stories up. With Man of Steel taking place in ostensibly the real world, neither Jonathan nor Clark would be so melodramatic as as to have him throw himself off a grain silo, throw himself into a thresher, or shoot himself with a shotgun to test his durability. And even if they did some testing, would they go so far or even have the capability to test threats on the same order of magnitude and energy as a natural disaster? I really don't think so. It's an assumption, either way, that Jonathan and Clark played it safe, like he said he was tired of doing, or that they somehow had a full appreciation of Clark's invulnerability and absolute certainty that he could and would survive a tornado. However, I think the lack of certainty is more consistent with realistic behavior and what we see in the film, and is more persuasive. Not knowing whether a tornado could possibly kill Clark changes the calculus considerably from assuming certain knowledge of invulnerability as a fact. And it's an important distinction or nuance that critics don't bother to make or take for granted, which is profoundly unfair to the filmmakers and the characters as presented in the movie. Judging characters based on information that they don't have and that the filmmakers intentionally didn't give to the characters. I'm unwittingly getting sucked into more tornado scene topics, but if we imagine that Jonathan thinks that Clark could be killed and raised him that way, it may put into perspective yet another criticism about the inelegance of that scene. Many believe that Clark learns that man is mortal and that he needs to learn powerlessness through Jonathan's death, and therefore they prefer the simplicity and elegance of a heart attack. I've got a ton to say about that, but for now, consider whether Clark needs to learn about mortality and power limits if, in Man of Steel, he's lived with that understanding his whole life. There's a bit of a disconnect to say the film should have imposed a lesson from a different continuity upon a Clark that grew up with it as a given. From Martha, we know that there was a fragility to Clark's breathing as an infant, years of pain and difficulty adapting as a child, pain from sensory attacks, and the emotional pain of secrecy and isolation, all without ever knowing his limits. Clark's suffering never gave him the illusion of invulnerability or invincibility. Clark was viscerally aware of the meaning of mortality, life, and death. 
which is why he sacrifices his sacred secret and all the fear and the isolation and consequences that would come with such revelation for the sake of the lives of his schoolmates. He wasn't harboring under the illusion that they'd survive without intervention. This is consistent with common sense and somebody who lives on a farm. Yet at the same time, Clark is tangibly aware of his limits. He never has the hubris to need the death of Jonathan to tell him that his powers can't fix everything. Because Jonathan has drilled into him that his powers, as wonderful as they are, aren't enough to fix everything, such as the world's reaction to his secret. If anything, his powers tend to compound the issue. This Clark is consistently humble throughout the film. He doesn't need a lesson on the limitation of his powers in this way. In fact, he simply isn't that powerful to begin with. Not to say that he isn't physically powerful. He is. But physical power has limited real power in the real world. In some sense, perhaps an allegory for America's military might, but that's another show for another time. Jonathan never really remarks on Clark's ability to physically impose his will upon the world through his powers. Jonathan seems to reinforce the idea that Clark's real impact comes from the revelation of his origins, his existence, his purpose for being, and the nature of his character. Again, not his power. As powerful as Superman is in this film, he's nowhere near the godlike fantasy of pre-crisis Superman, or even Donner Superman with the cosmic power to turn back time, reverse death itself, and wipe memories with a kiss. That's Superman needed a lesson in limitation, which of course was undermined by the film's conclusion, but that's commentary for another show. Thrusting an unneeded lesson in humility upon this Clark seems a heavy-handed misunderstanding of where Clark was as a character, which isn't to say that the tornado scene is devoid of lessons. It actually has many, but that's another show, and I think I've already spent way too much time tackling tornado-related topics in an Ellesmere episode. Like I said, we may have to come back. You've probably forgotten, I nearly have, but we got onto all of this talk about Clark's limitations because of the obstacle presented by the Sentry robot. I have a note here about the Sentry as a sperm, but I have no idea what I meant. I guess it looks like one. Clark had to fight it. Uh, maybe it will come back to me later. <laughs> um... The Sentry's tentacle seems to be made of liquid geo, and that might explain in part why Krypton may have relied on liquid geo display technology when they have the capability to project high-fidelity holograms like Jor-El. Liquid Geo acts not only as a display technology, but as something with the versatility to form a physical interface, tools like the tentacles, or even objects like the command key. That kind of utility and versatility may be worth a trade in visual fidelity. Additionally, there seems to be a certain tangible fragility to the holograms, as demonstrated by Carvex scattering it when she punched through it. When Clark manages to hit the command key, the sentry ceases hostilities and Clark catches a glimpse of Jor-El. And again, this should be intriguing to the audience. Clark doesn't know who this is, but we do, and we saw this man die. I think the filmmakers were careful to show Jor-El's death, despite the planet blowing up shortly after, because otherwise some might be confused and believe that he's there in reality. So I want to wrap this episode tackling one last criticism, which has a diegetic dimension as well as creative commentary, and this issue is whether Clark is culpable for Zod's crimes. Does Clark bear responsibility and blame for the damage and harm caused by Zod because he allegedly brought Zod to Earth? It's a question that characters in the DCCU will ask and that the audience might ask. I'm not going to pretend that the law is the sum total of moral philosophy, although we will 
will get into that eventually for other topics, but the law serves as a useful lens by which we apply moral principles and actual facts. To put it another way, philosophers, theologians, or politicians may argue about the rational underpinnings of why something is moral or not, but to actually use it in our day-to-day lives, we can't start all over from ground zero and reform moral philosophy in each and every case. Rather, we condense it all into workable laws or codes which try to embody those beliefs, and then we have judges and juries, jurisprudence and due process to fill in the gaps and cover what the code cannot. So in using the law, we're talking about whether it is fair or reasonable to blame Clark. We're talking about justice, not just consequences. As a consequence of what happened, some people, of course, can, and in fact do, attach blame to Clark for Zod. In fact, anyone can be blamed for anything if we remove fairness, justice, or reason from the equation. Bigots, for example, are no strangers to scapegoating. However, we're not talking about whether somebody could blame Clark, but whether it's fair. Justifiable blame or culpability attaches when there is a wrongful act and a wrongful mental state, together being the closely tied cause of the harm. Generally, all of that must come together for somebody to be culpable. For example, just because you only imagine a piano falling on your annoying neighbor, you wouldn't be culpable because there was no wrongful act. All you did was imagine it. Or, if you were properly doing demolition and you checked your drop zone before pushing a piano out of the building, if that neighbor was harmed because he stepped into the cordoned off drop zone after the piano was free-falling, you wouldn't be culpable because your mindset was careful and the harm was unintentional. The action could become wrongful if the mindset is wrongful. If you saw your neighbor in the drop zone and let the piano fall, or if you saw your neighbor distractedly texting and could reasonably expect that he might enter the drop zone, or if you were to simply drop the piano without even checking the drop zone, those would be wrongful mindsets. The action and the mindset have to actually cause and be proximate to the harm, and there must be a harm. You could want your neighbor dead by way of falling piano and let a piano fall, but if your neighbor was vacationing safely in Sydney, there is no harm to be culpable for. And even if by some curious twist of fate, your neighbor was hit by a different piano and harmed at the exact same moment that you wished him ill and dropped your piano, you would not be culpable because you didn't cause the harm. We can see that the action has to be a free will choice. If you were forced at gunpoint to drop the piano while under duress, you wouldn't be culpable. Instead, the gunman would be culpable. Or if, after you release the piano and it was free falling out of your control, the neighbor leapt into the drop zone and was hurt, you also wouldn't be culpable because you can't control your neighbor's actions. Applied to Man of Steel, Clark had no choice or free will in being naturally born, in having the codex bonded to him, and in being sent to Earth. There was no action, much less intention, on Clark's part. Those all resulted from Jor-El, and children do not have a choice in who their biological fathers are or what they do in their infants. The circumstances of his birth and immigration that made it desirable for Zod to come to Earth are no more Clark's fault than anyone could or should be blamed for the color of their skin. Okay, fair enough. But when did Clark have a choice? When did Clark take action? And the crux of this argument comes from Zod's lines, where he says that he journeyed across an ocean of stars to reach Kal-El, and then to Clark he says, 
For 33 years, we prepared until we finally detected a distress beacon, which you triggered when you accessed the ancient scout ship. You led us here, Cal. So Zod lays out the chain of causation. Clark accessed the ship, which triggered a distress beacon, which Zod detected, and which led Zod to Earth. In that sense, yes, Clark led Zod to Earth. But Clark did not literally lead Zod to Earth, as in intentionally make contact with Zod, determine that it would be a good idea for Zod to come to Earth, and agree to show Zod the way to Earth. The latter case is factually completely different from what actually happened, and the question is whether there is a moral or legal difference, and of course there is. In the second case, Clark is actively and intentionally and knowingly leading Zod to Earth, and thus possibly culpable. In the first case, seen in the film, Clark's only free will action is to access the ship. Clark didn't know about or intend for the distress signal, Zod's receipt of that signal, Zod's arrival, and Zod's subsequent action. He merely accessed the ship, something that the military was inevitably going to do anyways. Note that Zod says that Clark triggered the distress beacon, not that Clark transmitted it or intended it. Note too that Zod calls it a distress beacon. Now consider the possible sources of the distress signal. It could come from the ship or the command key, and neither makes sense after the insertion of the command key. If the ship is calling to Kryptonians for aid, the command key itself indicates that the Kryptonians are here. Thus why the sentry ceases hostilities once the key is fully inserted. So there's no need to call for what has already arrived. If the command key is the alleged source of the signal, well, Jorel forged the key with the instructions for Kal-El after the presumed destruction of Krypton. Even if there were miraculous survivors, Jorel did not even trust himself and Lara to join Kal-El on his journey to Earth, much less anyone else from Krypton. Jorel held this conviction at the expense of his own life. Jorel would not have coded the command key to send a distress signal to a people that he believed to be dead or who might compromise his son's ability to demonstrate free will and act as a bridge between peoples. So much more likely and reasonably, the ship sent the distress beacon upon initial breach of the ship's security. It's logical to call out for the Kryptonians for help when none are present, meaning no command key, and when your security is being breached by your sentry robots being engaged. This means that even if Clark had never been on Earth, the military was already uncovering and investigating the scout ship. They would have eventually breached its hull, encountered its sentry drones, and triggered a distress signal, just like Clark did. The only difference is that Clark's actions equipped him to deal with Zod, whereas if the military had tripped the signal, all hope would have been lost. Zod would have come for the Genesis Chamber and to investigate a viable candidate for terraforming, if nothing else. The fact that the military was also going to do the exact same act shows that there was no duty of care being breached. In other words, you can pretty easily dismiss any allegations that Clark intended or knew Zod was coming, but you could still make an argument that Clark was negligent or reckless. In our piano-dropping hypothetical, that would be like not checking the drop zone carefully first or at all before letting that piano fly. 
Now, how do we know that that is negligence or recklessness? We look for a standard of care to see what duty the accused has to follow. We'd look at how people doing demolition are reasonably expected to act. Here, in this case, we're dealing with an almost completely novel situation, so there is no standard per se, but nonetheless, we see that the military would have also accessed the ship. And today, we have scientists who intentionally beam out signals into space without regard for hostile extraterrestrials. So Clark's behavior does not appear to be out of line. In fact, Clark perhaps has a little more information than the military to justify his access of the ship. From Clark's perspective, the only additional insight that he has is that if this ship is related to him and his people, his people sent a vulnerable, asthmatic infant to a distant world not exactly the actions of an aggressive militant race. Believing in a baby-based blitzkrieg burdens basic common sense. Clark has never been contacted in his entire life, and he may be aware that the ship predates human civilization. He doesn't know that his vessel brought him to Earth, traveling faster than light. He has no reason to believe that stepping onto that ship would summon his people, or that his people would be hostile. However, reasonable minds can differ, and maybe you believe that some argument for negligence or recklessness might attach, and those arguments can be made, however they get superseded by Zod's intentional actions as an intervening cause. In other words, even if you can argue accident or carelessness by Clark, culpability attaches to Zod because his crimes were intentional. Back to our piano example, if you accidentally leave your demolition site unlocked and unknown to you, a psychopath uses that access to drop a piano on your neighbor, the culpability for the harm to the neighbor is on the psychopath, not you. By the same token, Zod's intentional acts make him blameworthy, not Clark. Now, there's definitely more that we can talk about in terms of proximate cause, vicarious liability, collective responsibility, blaming victims, and more, but I have got to wrap this up. No time for mailbag today, but hopefully soon there have been some really thought-provoking topics raised by some of our listeners. You guys are awesome. Like I said, I'm going to be on business for a couple of weeks. I am so excited that it seems that we have an official date for the trailer, and I can't wait to break that one down. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, 
Russell Bright, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Saab, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, I know you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope that you'll join me at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question that you want answered or an insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. With the discovery and now coexistence of an alien from another world, humanity is approaching the dawn of a new age. It is already revealed how we are hardwired to doubt and mistrust what we don't immediately understand. But in the simplest of terms, doesn't Superman embody everything remarkable about the American dream? He is the ultimate immigrant, a refugee from another planet who has been raised as one of us. As much as he is Kryptonian, he is also human and has chosen to help our world, not overtake it. The cultural impact of this extraterrestrial contact is ongoing. How will this change our science and technology, our religious beliefs, our politics? Will there be interplanetary travel to discover new worlds, new peoples? All we know for certain is that the introduction of Superman has forever changed the course of human history. Answer, son.